we're all getting locked and loaded for Bible class tonight. A couple of announcements. First of all, the um, deacons meeting, monthly deacons meeting will be on Saturday, January the 18th. It got moved from this coming uh, uh, Saturday. And then also there will be the annual congregational meeting on Sunday, February uh, February the 9th. So make sure that's in your in your calendar. Cast your burden upon the Lord, and he will sustain you. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Before we get started this evening, let's make sure we're ready to study the Word. we got some good things to go through tonight, and though I am primarily going to give talk about the Egypt trip on, um, on Thursday night, well, we're going to see some fun things tonight too. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so everyone can make sure they are uh, ready uh, spiritually to study the Word and to get focused on on those things that we're going to study this evening and be in right relationship to the Lord. And then, um, so that means confessing sin if necessary. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so thankful we have this time to study this evening, to reflect upon your word, to look at what you have for us. Father, we're thankful that you have given us forgiveness of sin because of what Christ did on the cross, and that by admitting our sin, we have forgiveness, cleansing, we're restored to fellowship, walking with you, enjoying the intimacy of our relationship with you. Now, Father, as we study your word this evening, help us to understand what we're studying and to see how it relates to us and also confirming to us the reliability and trustworthiness of the scripture And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, open your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel, chapter 12, verses 24 to 31. 2 Samuel, chapter 12, verses 24 to 31. And we're wrapping up this particular section in 2 Samuel that began uh, just a couple of chapters ago in chapter, uh, chapter 10. Chapter 10 through chapter 12 is wrapped within the context of the war uh, with the Ammonites, the attempt to uh, take uh, Rabbah, the capital of Ammon. And it all started back at the beginning of chapter 10 when the uh, uh, new king ruled in Ammon and he is insulting to David's messengers uh, to, to Ammon. And so because of that, that brought about a war. And in the context of that war is when David commits his sin of adultery with Bathsheba, then the attempt to cover it up, and the conspiracy to have your, her husband Uriah killed. And then uh, we studied David's... Um, We've studied through David's uh, recognition of his sin, his confession, and forgiveness in chapter 12, 
the issue of the death of the son that was the result of the adultery, the birth of the baby, and all of the issues related to infant salvation and the origin of human life and all of those studies. And now we come to the end and wrapping up this section from verses 24 down through 31. And in these verses, we are in sort of a transition. There are some things that are said, language that's used here, that helps to transition us into the next section. From 2 Samuel uh, chapter 13 on, we see the consequences and some of the divine discipline that comes to David uh, through his own uh, family. And we'll get into that more uh, next time. It's a fourfold discipline, the death of the uh, the infant that is was uh, born to uh, Bathsheba as a result of the adultery, and then there will be the sins of Amnon and when he rapes his half sister Tamar, <clears throat> and that's in chapter thirteen. And then we see Absalom's re- revenge for that as he kills his half brother Amnon, and then eventually a- uh, Absalom's. A rebellion against uh, against David. So the next few chapters are not the most uplifting. They are not the most uh, joyful uh, chapters that we have in Scripture, but they are uh, interesting and there's important things embedded uh, within that. The God, the Holy Spirit, has revealed that to us. But today we're just going to finish wrapping up where we are in the end of chapter 12, And what I want to look at is I've titled this Solomon because the first two verses deal with the birth of Solomon, David because of the emphasis on David, and I wanted to bring out a couple of things related to something I learned on the trip to Egypt, and then love and hate simply because we have the phrase here at the end of verse 24 that the Lord loved him, that is Solomon, And then Solomon is given a name, a special name that is revealed by God to Nathan, and it is Jedidiah. And so we need to look at that. That reinforces, because of the meaning of Jedidiah, that he is beloved of the Lord. So that brings up some questions about God's love for people, also the phrase that where God hates certain people, we have to understand that came up in conversation when we were in Egypt and got into various questions there, so I thought that it fits here because it wraps around the theme that goes on into uh, chapter 13 because you continue to see the use of the word love as well as the introduction of the word hate in the 13th chapter. So what we'll look at this evening is, first of all, the birth of Shlomo, Solomon, Second Samuel chapter 12, verses 24 to 25. Then we'll look at the question that is raised because of the introduction of God's special love for Solomon that's emphasized there in Second Samuel 12:24, And then concluding briefly with just a look at the conquest of Rabbah and the Ammonites, which brings this entire section from the beginning of chapter 10 to a close before we get into the uh, the next section. Okay, so here we have in verse 24 the statement that David then comforted Bathsheba. That's because of the death of the, of the infant. So he comforts her, and as they 
are comforting one another going through the mourning process, then uh, that brings them closer together and they engage in sexual relations and she becomes pregnant again and gives birth to a son. And he, that is David, calls his name Solomon. And we're told, now the Lord loved him. Now that is a very significant statement for several reasons. And then we're told in verse 25, and he, that is God, sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet. So he, that is Nathan now, called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. So that helps to uh, bring out this point that the Lord had a special love for Solomon. Now that raises a lot of questions for a lot of people because this is often misunderstood. There are those who try to take this and fit it within a framework of Calvinist theology that this is a special love. And what we need to do is recognize that this is fitting within the framework of the Davidic covenant, which we spent half the year studying. And God had promised that there would be a son born to David through whom those covenant blessings would come. And that it is through this son of David that the seed of the woman promised back in Genesis 3.15 that the Messiah would come, that the, in, in the pro, what's called the Proto-Evangelium or the first hint of the gospel, back in Genesis 3.15, God told the woman, that, and actually he's addressing the serpent, that the uh, seed of the serpent would uh, strike the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman would crush his head. And that is uh, an indication, the seed of the woman being uh, an allusion to the Messiah, who would be true humanity, who would ultimately defeat Satan. And so you have, as a result of that, the Bible uh, traces the seed of the woman. A lot of people read the genealogies and they go, oh, what's all this about? Uh, just one person begetting another person. Why are all these names in here that I can't pronounce? And that's what they're there for, is to trace this lineage from, uh, from Eve in the garden and the birth of actually Seth in chapter 4 all the way down. And each genealogy, you get the genealogies in various places like Genesis 5, Genesis 11, later genealogies tracing the seed through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph down to Joseph's descendants, and then later on you have other genealogies, all of which are designed to show that Jesus is from that lineage. That's why the Gospel of Matthew begins with a genealogy. That's why Luke has a genealogy in Luke 4. Is All of this is designed to trace Jesus back to David through Solomon. So when we get to this phrase, now the Lord loved him, the major thing we have to remember is this is talking about God's blessing of Solomon, that it's going to be through his line that the Messiah would come. So we're going to start off and just talk about David a minute, something I haven't brought out before, that if you read 
among certain archaeologists and historians of Israel that are referred to as minimalists. That means that they don't believe a whole lot of what the Bible says, just a minimal amount. And for that, most of them, that's like almost nothing. They don't believe that any of that was real history. They reject it as historical, but as as is typical of that sort of hostility to the Bible, they are constantly proven wrong. And for many decades now, there have been those who have denied the actual existence of David. doesn't matter that the Bible talks about him. If it hasn't been discovered archaeologically, then it didn't happen. And so they've denied the existence of David. They've denied the existence of of the Hittites, and they've denied the existence of many other things, all of which have been eventually uh, discovered, uh, well, evidence has been discovered of their existence through archaeology. Now, one of the things you always have to remember is that discovering archaeological evidence is empiricism. And empiricism is great and wonderful, but, but empiricism, to use another word, is just trying to, is just learning things from your experience, from your, uh, see, from your senses, from hearing and smelling and touching, and uh, all, of this, all of the senses become the source of, of information that becomes your, your source of truth. Now, as we've gone over again and again and again, there are basically four ways we know anything, four systems of perception, Four ways we know. The first is through rationalism. We come to know something is true because we use our minds. We reason things out. We work through it logically. And we start with logical principles and come to valid conclusions. But it's always limited because our data is limited. And ultimately, we're trusting our own mental faculties and our own logic machine to come to truth. In empiricism, we're looking at data. We're looking at the fossils. If we're trying to figure out the history of the world, we look at fossils, and that's our experience. And the trouble is that we have so many people who would rather judge truth by their experience, their experience with the fossils, or in the case of archaeology, their experience with what is discovered in in and through archaeological uh, remains, as remains of previous civilizations. And so they use that as the absolute control. Then you have mysticism. And in mysticism, people turn inward, and they have various spiritual experiences or insights, and they use that to determine uh, what truth is. They think that God has spoken to them, they think that God, they've had dreams or whatever, and God is the source of that. And what we always have to remember is that either our experience interprets Scripture or Scripture interprets our experience. It doesn't matter how real something seems to us. If it contradicts Scripture, we have to let Scripture interpret the data, not the other way around. And so that's the fourth way that we know things. The fourth system of perception is revelation. God has spoken to us, and because God has spoken to us, we can understand what he has said, and that then becomes the framework for evaluating and understanding our, our, our experience. 
So we come to archaeology, we don't know everything, we don't have evidence of everything, but we do have evidence of some things. And so over the last uh, several uh, years, several decades, uh, there are three different archaeological finds that substantiate the claim that there was a David, a historical figure. Now, nothing that speaks directly of David himself, but in each of these instances, there's a reference to the house of David. So if there's a, a lineage from David, then a house of David, then that means that David must have been a, a historical figure. And there are so many that still deny that, that this David was just some mythological figure that was uh, made up uh, for various reasons in the past. Now, we've talked about some of these before, and some of you have seen some of this evidence before. If you've been with me to Israel and you've been to the Israel Museum, you've been to uh, other sites, you've seen this. The first evidence uh, of David that we have from archaeology is the Tel Dan Stele. Now, Dan, Tel is just a, ma- a word for meaning a mound, and so it refers to the mound that covers, that uh, actually was built up as a city or uh, an, inhabita- an inhabited place was built up. And so it becomes a mound over the centuries, and so you cut into it, and probably the best illustration is think of a, of a 12-layer chocolate cake. Don't think too much about it. And you cut into it. And when you cut a quarter of it out, what you see are 12 different layers. Well, that's like these tells. You cut into them and you see the different layers of civilization over the ages. So the bottom layer is the oldest. The one on top is the most most recent. And as an archaeologist goes in and cuts through that, they begin to categorize and classify all the different things that they, that they find. And then they have to date the, those layers. And usually they do that through uh, poverty, any kind of pottery remains uh, that they've discovered. So that's that's what a tell is. And Dan is the city that is in the far north. Originally, it's called Laish during the time of Abraham, but during the time of the judges, the tribe of Dan migrated from their area down around modern Tel Aviv now, which is in the Shephelah, the the coastal plains of Israel. And they couldn't defeat the Canaanites that were there because they didn't trust God. And so eventually they migrate north to the furthest point north in Israel, up near Mount Hermon, the headwaters of the Jordan River. And they conquered the people at Laish. And so this is where the Danites uh, had their habitation. And so it became known as, as Dan. It's the furthest city uh, to the north in Israel. And you hear phrases in the Bible from Dan to Beersheba, Dan in the far north, Beersheba in the far south. So this stele was found in the archaeological dig up there in, um, in, in Dan, and this was discovered in 1993. They discovered these uh, stone fragments while excavating the city gate at Dan, which is interesting because that city gate is so old that Abraham would have walked through that city gate. Some of you have uh, have, have been there. And so you can see there's a, some uh, of the wording has been highlighted in white here. 
This is an early form of Hebrew writing, and it says, and it's a reference to the house, uh, the house of David. Now, of these lines, there's they're fragmentary. There's actually 13 lines, but I'm not putting all of them up here on this slide. And what can be translated is what we see here. The the ellipses here, the the, the dots, just those are words that are indecipherable or have been left out. And you read through it, and it reads, My father went up against him when he fought at some location. And my father lay down. In other words, he died. He went to his father's, and the king of, of I, so it's probably king of Israel, down here on the fourth line, entered previously in my father's land, and Hadad made me king. So this is, Hadad is the king in Syria, so this is his son. And Hadad went in front of me, and I departed from the seven-something-something of my kingdom. And I slew 70 kings who harnessed thousands of chariots and thousands of horsemen or horses. I killed Jehoram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, and I killed Ahaziah, son of Jehoram, king of the house of David. Okay, so there's a reference to the house of David. And I said their towns in ruins and turned, and then it goes on and read. But the point is that it mentions the house of David, and this is dated to about 850 B.C., middle of the 9th century. David reigned from 1010 to 971, and he's followed by his son uh, Solomon. So this is about 120, 130 years after David lived. Now, the next piece of evidence that we have uncovered is the Moabite stele. Now, a stele is a a stone or a monument that has been erected that has writing on it, giving various information. And this is also called the Misha stele, named after King Misha of Moab. And this records a victory that he alleges was given to them by his god uh, Chemosh and allowed him to defeat Israel. And so if you look at and read this and, and decipher it, talks about they defeated the house of Omri. That's the father of, of Ahab. So he defeats the house of Omri. But in the uh, uh, trans, translation of this, an archaeologist named Andre Lemaire reconstructed part of line 31, which reads, the house of David. So again, it is about the same time as the uh, Tel Dan st- uh, stele, and this gives us a second. And this uh, uh, Moabite stone is in the British uh, Museum. Now, the third is interesting. I was not aware of this third one until we went to Egypt. And this is the Shishak. He's referred to in the Bible as Shishak, but his, the Egyptians referred to him as Pharaoh Shishak I. And there is an inscription, that's, I left the slide on there, that's, that has nothing to do, the Misha stone has nothing to do with it. Uh, the Shishak inscription at the temple of Amon-Re, who is a, uh, an Egyptian god, in Karnak, which is in Luxor today, which is ancient Thebes. Okay, so here is 
a picture of this this wall. I'll show some other pictures of the of the temple there at Karnak. Just a magnificent site, huge site, and you just can't imagine all of the pillars uh, that are there. I mean, they're they're huge. They're about this big around, and they're just covered with hieroglyphics and all kinds of different things. And and we went to this one wall, and Wayne. Uh, brought this out, Wayne House, who was uh, with us. Uh, Wayne uh, Wayne pointed this out, and so you may not be able to see this very clearly, but you can look at it later. I, I've got it blown up on later slides, but there's all these little figures going along here, and each of these figures is of a man facing to the right. His hands are tied behind him, and each one of these represents a city in Israel. Shishak invaded through Judah and Israel in the um, uh, late ninth, ninth century after the division of the northern southern kingdom and defeated a lot of these towns. He, uh, he uh, attacked Jerusalem and Rehoboam had to buy him off with a lot of a lot of gold from the temple, which he replaced with bronze. And so that's when things really began to get de degraded. But there are portions of this you can see where this uh, covering, this plaster where they had uh, engraved these figures has, through uh, deterioration over the ages, the weathering of the wall and everything are gone. But they didn't disappear. Some of them didn't disappear that long ago. This was originally discovered in the late 1700s. And through the 1800s, part of this area right here, which I'm highlighting in this slide, was, was there. But it just fell off in, uh, due to weathering and everything. But there were pictures and drawings of it uh, prior to the time that that it fell off, and and but it wasn't deciphered until uh, late in the 20th century. So each of these figures, you can see them a little more clearly now, represents another uh, town in Israel that was defeated by by Shishak. Now, what Wayne did was he had a graphic artist come in on the basis of these other diagrams and add this to his slide. And you can see these two figures uh, here and their hieroglyphics on each one. There's a cartouche. Now you'll see in, like for example, these other slides, you can see this oval that is, that is uh, on, the, on the figure. That oval that surrounds some, some, uh, some glyphs. Uh, that is called a cartouche, and the cartouche is, is tells you this is a name of a person or name of a town, and so uh, they reconstructed this, and you have the cartouche here, and the cartouche has been translated by an Egyptologist, very well-known, highly respected Egyptologist. He is an evangelical, although we would quibble with some of the things that he does in the way he dates some things in his chronology. But Kenneth Kitchen has translated this as the Highlands of David. Now that's significant because we know from Scripture that Jerusalem was under siege by Shishak, and that's in the hill country. 
And so that's what he's describing here by the highlands is the hill country of, of Judea, which is where Jerusalem uh, was located. Now, I took this picture, you see at the bottom the credit is uh, to, to Wayne House, from his, this project that Wayne is working on called the House Visual Study Bible. And Wayne started working on this a decade ago, and he's just about to a point where he really wants to promote uh, the New Testament. He doesn't have, uh, it's, not, it's a work in progress. He'll be working on this till the Lord takes him home and maybe... Uh, others will take up the project afterward, and Wayne adds to it all the time. Wayne is a remarkable scholar, has had tremendous energy, but he's written uh, dozens and dozens of of uh, theological articles. He has edited a host of books and a new commentary series that's coming out that's been coming out in Lagos over the last several years. And chart books, I don't know, he's just incredibly productive. And this is sort of his magnum opus. Uh, he is being able to take all of this that he has studied over, over the years, and he's got this online visual Bible. So you can go to Matthew chapter 2 or chapter 1, just start with Matthew and go through, and he has links to articles, and he has pictures, and he's gotten the rights to use all of Randy Price's pictures and Todd Boland. Todd Boland's a, a DTS grad, teaches out at Master Seminary, and he I've got all of his pictures. Uh, so he's got the rights to all those pictures. Probably Boland's got forty or 50,000 pictures from everywhere in the Middle East. I use some of them. I've got a lot of my own, which I usually use. Wayne has a lot of his own. But you can go to the website, which is https colon slash slash hvsb dot app or you can just search on your website for Wayne House Visual Study Bible and that's how I got the link the other day and you can sign up for it and he has a uh, what I consider to be a minimal cost for it you can sign up for it for two weeks free of charge you sign up put your credit card information in there all that kind of stuff and, um, you know, most places where you go, you put in your information and you know that after two weeks you're going to get charged and you're going to forget about it. But uh, Wayne has it set up so what happens in two weeks is you get an email whether or not you want to continue and pay for it, at which time you click on a, a button and at that point you get charged. And at this stage, it's just an opportunity to help support this work in progress. He's got to pay... Um, computer technicians and everybody else to continue doing all of this but this is a phenomenal project that one guy is trying to do it just it, it blows your mind but anyway uh, that's my little commercial for uh, for Wayne's visual, visual study Bible but this is a fascinating thing that gives uh, a third documentation to the historicity of the house of David that the Bible is talking about someone who actually actually lived. So back to our passage, David comforted Bathsheba's wife and went into her, lay with her, and she bore a son. So obviously time is going by. Uh, she's been pregnant once. She goes through the birth process, so that's nine months in, earlier in the chapter. Now you have another nine-month period goes by, so that's 18 months. 
So probably two years at least has gone by from the beginning of chapter 10 through the end of chapter 12. So she has a son, and she names him Solomon. Now, Solomon's, I believe that the root of Solomon, the name is from the uh, from Shalom, meaning peace. And one of the reasons that God says that David should not build the temple is because he's been a man of war, but his son will not be a man of war, but will be a man of peace. And so I believe that that is the primary meaning here. However, you always have these people who don't really believe the Bible or inerrancy come along and say, well, it means this or it means that. And so this is someone who comes along and says that this means a replacement, a replacement for the dead son. And maybe that's a a double entendre. Some words can indicate some different things like that, and that's possible. But others have come along and say, no, no, no. This baby is really Uriah's baby. So it gets far-fetched. There's some really strange views out there. But this is the child that God has given. Uh, Perhaps the name also has this secondary sense that it's a replacement for the child that, that died. But this is the one through whom the seed will come. And that's the point of the next phrase. Now the Lord loved him. Now when... You and I read that, often we will look at a statement like that and we will uh, impute certain meanings to that without paying enough attention to context or how it fits within the framework of the Scripture. So we're going to look at how the Scripture uses the word love. But before we go any further, I want to go ahead and finish these verses Verse 25 says, And he sent word, that is, God sent word, by the hand of Nathan the prophet. So this is divine revelation. That most of these figures had two, three, four, five names. They would have a birth name. They would have a throne name. They might have two or three other names. David, we know mostly by the name David, but remember there's one passage that refers to Elkanan killing Goliath and his brothers. Well, Elkanan was another name for David, just as Jedidiah is another name for Solomon. But this is the only time that this name for Solomon shows up anywhere in Scripture. Now, at the bottom of the screen, I have the information on this name. It comes from the root verb, Yadid, which is interesting because that is a play on words also because the core it is Y-D-Y-D. David is, is spelled with a D for Dalit, a Vav, and a D. There's a play on words there to bring to mind the, the name of his father David as also beloved of the Lord. So this is the root meaning here. It means one who is beloved, one is honored, one who is uh, very significant to someone. And then it has the suffix Yah, which is the first syllable in the name for Yahweh. So it means beloved of Yahweh. Now if we fast forward to the 20th century, there was a British 
officer who was assigned to, uh, to, to Israel and to work with the Haganah, that is the pre-state uh, pre of Israel army during the 30s and 40s, was called the Haganah, and they were being defeated constantly by the Arabs in the Arab Revolt of 1937, 38, 39. And so the British sent this officer as an advisor. Now, this guy was quite a believer. He was, uh, he was reared in a Plymouth Brethren home, knew a lot about Scripture, and his belief was that the Jews, the Israelites, the Haganah, needed to fight at night because that's what was happening. When the sun went down, the Arabs would attack the, the Is Israeli villages at night, and they would uh, get defeated. So the Arabs owned the night. Well, he, he read about Gideon and defeating the Midianites in Judges 6 and 7, and so his he took that, we need to fight at night, we need to go after the Arabs at night, and he trained these Haganah uh, officers and troops to fight at night, one of whom was Moshe Dayan. He was an Israeli general, well-known because he had a had an eye patch. Later he became uh, a general, and also he was high up in... Um, in, in the cabinet in Israel during the Yom Kippur War. So when Ord Wingate, that's the name of the British soldier, when Ord Wingate uh, got too close, he was too much of a lover of the Jews, so the uh, Brits decided he needed, he was going native, so they needed to get him out of Israel. So when they transferred him, the Jews loved him, the Israelis loved him, and they bestowed on him a nickname. They called him Hayadid. That's the root here. The H-A at the beginning is the article. And Yadid, he was the beloved one. And so this stayed with him. He was eventually um, responsible for forming a, a terrific uh, counter, um, uh, I, I guess a special ops unit. He's considered one of the granddaddies of special op ops and he had the um, had them fighting in Burma uh, during World War II, and he was shot down in an American bomber. And so after the war, when they found the remains of this American bomber, I think there were two Brits on board, and everybody else was American. The Americans just sort of scooped up the remains. You couldn't differentiate who was who. And they buried them all at Arlington National Cemetery, which irritated the Brits because he was a British hero. But he is there. You can, I've gone to his grave several times. And for many years, the Israeli ambassador in Washington, D.C. would go out every year on the anniversary of his death. And uh, they would have a little ceremony and put, put flowers on the grave. But that's the meaning of this word, Yadid. So this is applied to Solomon. He is the beloved of, of the Lord. But what is this? I mean, what's this all about that Solomon is loved of the Lord? So let me take us through a little study of what, how this word is used, and it's, we have to understand some special things about this. So here are the questions. What does the Bible teach about God's love, especially in context of loving one person in contrast to others. 
Is this a sign that this person is the object of God's elective love for salvation? Or rather, is this a sign that God has a special plan or purpose for this individual? And so we need to trace this out. And there's a lot of confusion that does come up in relationship to this. And one passage that really sort of crystallizes this problem is found in Malachi chapter 1. So I want you to turn with me in your Bibles because we need to look at the context a little bit and go to that last book of the Old Testament written by that famous Italian prophet Malachi. So Malachi 1-2. Now the problem that Malachi is addressing is that after the exile, after the, there have been three returns of Jews back to the land from, from Babylon primarily, that they're, they're really not in obedience to the Lord. They're disobedient to the law of Moses, and there's all kinds of apostasy and other problems. And so Malachi is really addressing them, and he's dressing them down. This is a real problem for them and they have to get right with the Lord. And so it begins with the first verse. This is the burden, that is, the message of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. And he begins, God begins by speaking, I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? See, they're rebellious towards God. You've kicked us out of the land. We've gone through all this suffering. We're dominated by all these Gentile powers. How can you say that you've loved us? And so they reply, saying, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? So now God asks another rhetorical question. He says, was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord, yet Jacob... I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And then it goes on to say, and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Now if you go on and you look in your Bible, uh, we read, uh, starting in the um, third or fourth verse, even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Now, it looks on the surface that God is talking about two individuals. And often people take it that way. He's talking about the individual person Esau and the individual person Jacob. Now, who were Esau and Jacob? Esau and Jacob are the twin sons of Isaac. Isaac was the promised seed, the promised son of Abraham. God gave a covenant to Abraham, gave him what we refer to as the Abrahamic covenant, promised that he would give him a son. At the time the covenant was given, Abraham was getting pretty old. He and his wife Sarah, who was also uh, beyond childbearing years, had not been able to have a child. But God is saying, I will give you a child. And it is through that child that you will bless the world. You will have an innumerable number of descendants. And so this goes from Genesis 12 to Genesis 22. And a lot of uh, 
machinations by Sarah and Abraham to somehow solve this problem on their own, uh, part of which is that they, along the way, they had acquired an Egyptian uh, slave girl named Hagar, and Sarah says, well, let's help God out. You make uh, Hagar your concubine and go into her and she'll have a son, and that will be the seed. Well, God kept saying, no, the seed is going to be from you and Sarah. So that seed is the line going back to that seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15. Now it's being narrowed down to one family, the family of Abraham. And Abraham has this second son, the oldest son was Ishmael, the son that was the uh, product of Hagar, but that's not the line that's chosen. That was the older son. Uh, Isaac is the younger son, and we're going to see a principle here that God takes the younger son as the one through whom the blessing will go. So God is choosing Isaac, not for salvation. This doesn't mean Ishmael wasn't saved. He is choosing uh, Isaac as the line of the seed and the line of the covenant. So Isaac is the, the son, the promised son from the Abrahamic covenant to Abraham. And then Isaac will marry Rebekah, who is a distant cousin. And Rebekah will also be barren for many years, just as Sarah was, and God will miraculously uh, allow her to become pregnant. But she becomes pregnant with twins. Uh, The first to come out of the womb, the first to be born, is Esau, so he's the elder. The second to come out is Jacob. Jacob comes out like he's grabbing the heel of his twin brother Esau, And so he gets this name, Jacob, the heel grabber, which is an idiom for someone who's always trying to make a deal, somebody who's a chiseler, somebody who's always trying to take the shortcuts and get what they want without doing it the right way. And so eventually, or or before the birth, God told told Sarah, in your womb are two nations struggling against each other, not two people. Okay, so it's never about the individuals, Esau and Jacob. It is about the fact that they are the progenitors of two nations. And Esau, because he was, um, because he had red hair, was called uh, uh, Edom. That was his nickname, which means red. And he is the father of the Edomites, which are distant cousins. Of, uh, of Israel, and they live initially they were in the southern part of uh, of kind of judah near near the Dead Sea, and then later they were across on the other side over in the area around Petra and then eventually they came back across and uh, Her- King Herod was an Edomite, okay that kind of gives you traces them down through the uh, through the New Testament. But what you have here is these two nations. So when God is speaking here and he says, wasn't Esau Jacob's brother, yet Jacob I loved, he's not talking about Jacob as an individual. And when he says Esau I hated, 
He's not talking per se about an individual. He's talking about their nations, those that descend from them, because the seed of blessing is going to go through Jacob and not through Esau. So when God is saying, Jacob, I loved Esau, I've hated, you also have to understand this is a figure of speech where you're addressing, um, you have these opposites, love and hate, but it really becomes an idiom for explaining um, acceptance and rejection are preferring one over the other. When people read this and they say Esau hated, they think God hated. That's a mental attitude said. God hated Esau. And that just completely uh, ignores the context and ignores how these words are used. But it's important to work our way, our way through them. Romans 9, 10 through 14 picks up on this, so I want to bring that to your mind, summarizes this, and again has this same phrase, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now this doesn't mean that God is engaged in mental attitude sins against Esau. But once you say that, well, if God doesn't really hate Esau, does God, you have to ask the question, does God really love Jacob? So it's not really talking about personal love versus personal hate. It's a figure of speech, and we have to understand that, and I want to show it to you from the Scripture. So in Romans nine ten, verse 10, we read, And not only this, but when Rebekah, that's Isaac's wife, when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by her father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, not having done any good or evil. So before they're born, uh, the purpose of God according to his selection might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. God had a plan. It's not talking about salvation. It's talking about his plan uh, that the line of blessing would go through the younger. The principle in the ancient world was the older would be the heir, and the younger would serve the older. But God doesn't do it man's way. God's going to flip it, and the older will serve the younger. So Esau's the older. He's going to serve uh, Isaac. Isaac will be the, I mean Jacob, rather, Jacob will be the line of the seed. So verse 12, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, that is, Esau will serve Jacob. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. All right, so we have to ask the question, does God hate? If not, then if God, do, if God uh, doesn't hate, then does God love? That's where you start getting into a mess. Now, one solution to this problem was to say that these are anthropopathisms. Now, here I put the definition for an anthropopathism up on the screen. An anthropopathism is a figure of speech like an anthropomorphism. Now, anthro, it refers to man. Morphism refers to a form. So in the Bible, there are various human forms, eyes, ears, nose, fingers, hands, arms, that are attributed to God, but God doesn't have eyes, ears, nose, fingers, hands, arms. They are human 
physical attributes that are attributed to God which he does not actually possess in order to communicate to us through this figure of speech God's plans, purpose, and policies, okay? So in anthropopathism, from pathos, which relates to emotion or feelings, is attributing to God human emotions or feelings which he does not actually possess. See, that's common in both definitions. Which he does not actually possess in order to communicate something about God's policies, purposes, and plans. So that's an anthropopathism. So a lot of people will think, well, maybe hate. God doesn't really hate, so that makes sense that that would be an anthropopathism. But there's a problem. The problem is, if that's an anthropopathism, then the opposite term, love, would have to be an anthropopathism. Oh, now you're really getting into some problems, because if God doesn't actually possess love then what does it mean when he says God is love or for God loved the world in this way or God demonstrated his love? You start getting into some real problems. 1 John 4, 8 and 4, 16 specifically say, says that God is love. Now, some of you were around and back in the 70s, pastor theme for a while, for several years taught that love was an anthropopathism. Some of you never read the book Integrity of God, but in the first edition, the first 17 pages argued that this whole phrase, love of God, was an anthropopathism. Well, it became evident to Pastor Theme after a while that that had real problems. In fact, it was heretical. So since they had printed a whole bunch of books on the integrity of God, They didn't want to just dump those, so they put a little note that they printed that he wrote out and put it into the cover of each book to ignore the first 17 pages that that was all wrong, and other than that, everything else was okay in the book. Now, I know all of this because I worked as a ghostwriter for Pastor Theme for about eight years in the 90s, and we had to work our way through a lot of these things. In fact, I've had people say, well, how can you teach something, whatever, heard this numerous times, when Pastor Theme said it was this way. I said, there were a lot of things Pastor Theme said were this way, and when the editors and the writers of his book, which was Bobby Theme and myself, we would write these things out, we would say, this isn't right, and we'd go in there and talk to him, and he would say, that's right, fix it, and so we would fix it. So uh, that was my job, is to edit him and correct him when we came out with the book. So we did things like this, and that was why in the later editions of Integrity of God, none of that anthropopathism stuff was, was there. But I realize there's a lot of people who just listen to what he taught, and they never read the books, and they are abs- you're probably hearing this now going, well, I never heard that before. Well, that's because you didn't read the books, but it was there. So that's a little historical background. So you can't say it's an anthropopathism because if love, God's love is an anthropopathism, what about his righteousness? What about his justice? Why aren't they anthropopathisms? What about his omniscience, omnipotence? Can you say anything about God's attributes? If one of these is an anthropopathism, why aren't all of them? And then you end up 
with the view of the attributes of God that is what philosophers will call equivocal knowledge, which means our knowledge has nothing at all to do with the way God actually exists. And the way we have to think about God is what is called analogical knowledge. There is an analogy. There is a point of commonality. We know what love is in our finite experience, and therefore that helps us to understand something that is beyond our comprehension but is similar to what the Bible speaks of in terms of God's love. Same thing with knowledge. We have limited finite knowledge, but we can't comprehend infinite knowledge, his omniscience. So because we can't, but it's analogical, there's points of commonality so that there's a touchstone between them. So that's very important. So to say that God's hate is anthropopathic would mean his love is anthropopathic. So how in the world are we going to uh, handle all of this? Well, first of all, there are several different meanings to the idea of love that we find in the Scripture. Before we get there, I lost the attribution on this today, but I read this. I thought this was a very good comment by um, one of the uh, lexical sources I was uh, looking at. The younger child who is preferred over the elder child is so common in the Old Testament as to be an archetype. Now, notice that phrase, preferred. It's not saying that God loves with a deep personal love one person and hates or despises the others, that he is preferring one over the other for his purposes. He loves both, okay? But it's a figure of speech. So the younger child who is perverted over the elder child is so common in the Old Testament as to be an archetype. Nor is it necessarily a sign of a dysfunctional family. When God favors a child, divine sovereignty and moral justice, okay, God's righteousness, his justice, his, his sovereign plan for man through Israel is behind the favoring and the slighting. Thus God favored Abel over Cain, Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, Esau, Joseph over his brothers, Moses over Aaron, David over his brothers. Jacob also went into Rachel, and he also loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served with Laban still another seven years. Okay, so all of that is sort of background. So first of all, the biblical word in the Old Testament for love is ahav. Now, this is a big, broad word, okay? It's not a narrow word talking about personal love. It's not a narrow word talking about a love with integrity. This word can describe a wide range of things. It describes divine love, God's love for man. It describes man's love for God. It describes faulty Parental love, the love of parents for their children. It describes friendship love. All of these are very different. It describes affection among friends, uh, between spouses, love for neighbors, and love for enemies. Now, that's very, you can have personal love for your next door neighbor, but if the guy down the street is a jihadi terrorist, you're not going to have that same kind of warm, fuzzy feelings towards them. But we have to demonstrate kindness, graciousness, give them the gospel, 
All of these other things, that's part of what it means to love, love your enemy. So this word has a large range from approval of something or acceptance of something or someone to parental love, marital love, friendship love, love with integrity, to perverted sexual lust. We'll get into chapter 13. And Amnon loved his half-sister Tamar. This is a perverted sexual lust. It has nothing to do with romantic love, with uh, a love with integrity, uh, marital love. It, it, it's the same word, ahav, but it's describing perverted lust. So with this wide range of meanings, how do you decide what the nuance is? You have to look at context again and again and again, because it can mean anything on this broad spectrum. So we have examples of marital love. Then Isaac brought her, that is his new wife, Rebekah, into his mother Sarah's tent after Sarah died. And he took Rebekah and she became his wife and he loved her. So the first phrase becomes his uh, reference to their uh, sexual relations at the beginning of their marriage. And he loved her follows that. So this is talking about a personal love, a marital love between Isaac and Rebekah. You have passages that talk about the parental love, a father's love for his children. For example, the love that Abraham had for his his unique one and only son, Isaac, Genesis 22.2, where God said, Take now your son, your only son. The Greek calls him your monogenes son, like, like Jesus, the only begotten son. So there's a clear parallel. Your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah. Moriah, the, the hill that the temple in Jerusalem is on, is on Mount Moriah. The foundation stone in the temple where the Ark of the Covenant rested is supposed to be the location of where Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac. So he takes him to the land of Moriah, and God says, Offer him there as a burnt offering, an olah, on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So here it talks about the parental love. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. You just adore that son. Genesis 44.20 is some years later, and this is talking about the love of, of Jacob for Joseph. And so the brothers are now in Egypt, and they're talking to Joseph, who is the vizier, the second in command under Pharaoh, and they've come to him, and he is just somewhat disguised because he's shaved his head and his beard and everything, which was the way of the Egyptians, and they don't recognize him. And they're talking to him. We said to my Lord, that is Joseph, we have a father, an old man, this is Jacob, and a child of his old age who is young. That's talking about Benjamin. His brother is dead. They think Joseph is dead. That's a reference to Joseph. And he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. See, it's parental love. Then it also relates to fidelity. You love someone, you're faithful to them. That's the idea. Exodus 26, Deuteronomy 5.10, 7.9, number of other passages use the phrase, those who love me and keep my commandments. 
love is has more the sense of being faithful to someone. Then it's used in passages related to sexual lust. For example, in Genesis 34.3, Jacob has taken the family to Shechem, or Shechem, which is near modern Nablus, and there the Shechem, the son of Shechem, uh, just has the hots for uh, Dinah, and we're told his soul was strongly attracted to Dinah. He loved the young woman. See, this is like like uh, Amnon and Tamar. It's just sexual lust. And he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. It's also sexual lust in Second Samuel thirteen one. And this and after this, Absalom, the son of David, had a lovely sister whose name was Tamar. So they had the same mother. David's the father, but they had the same mother because David had different uh, different wives. And Amnon, who's the son of a different wife, Amnon, the son of David, loved her. This is not a love with integrity. This should be translated, had a sexually perverted lust for her. So, see, we have all these different meanings to the same Hebrew word. But it has this idea of preference. Genesis 29.30, then Jacob also went into Rachel. So Jacob Remember the story, Jacob goes north to Haran, he's working for his uncle Laban, and uh, Laban says, he, he falls in love with, with Rachel, he wants to marry Rachel, so Jacob says, work for seven years for her and you can uh, marry her. Well, what happens on the marriage night is Laban uh, double-crossed him, and Laban put the older sister Leah in there. She had a veil over her, so Jacob didn't know the difference. Jacob wakes up the next morning. He's married to Leah, not Rachel. So he goes to Laban, who's double-crossed him, and Laban says, well, you work another seven years, and you can have the younger sister. So he marries Rachel. So Jacob preferred Rachel. She's the one he loved. Then Jacob also went into Rachel and he also loved Rachel more than Leah. doesn't say he didn't like Leah. But he had a strong attraction and love for Rachel. He loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served with Laban still another seven years. Then the next verse we read, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved. Now that's a bad translation. Because as we see here, the word there for unloved is the Hebrew word sane, which is the same word that's used in Malachi and other passages for hate. So does, does Jacob have the mental attitude sin of hate for Leah? Well, he had six children by her. I don't think he hated her too much. So it doesn't mean he hated her. It means that he preferred... Rachel to Leah, but he really, really loved Leah also, but he loved Rachel more. So when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So this tells us that the idea in love versus hate is an idea of preference of one person over the other, but it doesn't mean that there's actual mental attitude sin of hate toward that other person or group of people. So when we go take that back to Malachi 1, when it says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, what that means is, Jacob I preferred for the line of the seed rather than Esau. 
God still blessed Esau richly, as we read in Genesis. And, but it was their descendants later where there were the problems, and that's what Malachi is bringing out. And so we're told um, Leah conceived, bore a son. She called him name, his name Reven, for she said, The Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. He already loved her. What she's saying here, my husband will prefer me over my sister Rachel because I'm giving him children. So that's this idea of preference. It has nothing to do with love and hate per se in a literal sense. So love means preferred, but the other is not hated. They're simply not preferred. Genesis twenty-five twenty-eight, and Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. See, they both loved both of their children, but Jacob, Isaac preferred Esau because he liked the food that he, that he cooked, but Rebekah's favorite of the two was Jacob. Uh, so hate, in some passages, has this idea of a mental attitude sin. For example, in Genesis 37.4, when uh, Joseph is telling his brothers about his dreams, that God's got a plan for him and not for them, other than they're going to bow down to him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, that's that personal parental love, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. That's the mental attitude sin of hate. And verse 5, now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. That's the mental attitude sin. But in other passages, it clearly means not preferred or to be rejected for a specific task. Uh, Exodus 18.21, moreover you, that is Moses, shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness. So they rejecting this sin of covetousness they're not they're, that's not appealing to them they're not going to be they're not going to lack integrity so hating has the idea of rejecting something and uh, place such over them to be rulers of thousands rulers of hundreds rulers of fifties rulers of ten uh, you have love and hate in judges fourteen sixteen Samson's wife uh, wept on him and said, you only hate me, you do not love me. Well, again, you have hate versus love, and it's not talking about personal uh, sin. It's just that Samson won't do what she wants him to, so uh, she just says, well, you hate me. Uh, But it's not talking about that personal uh, sin. And then we have Amnon's lust, which does turn to personal sin. After he uh, rapes Tamar, then he gets a case of guilt. He's, he's satisfied his lust, and he hates her exceedingly. So this is an example of lust turning to hate. You have other examples in Psalm 119, 113. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. I prefer your law, and I reject the double-minded. Uh, Psalm 119, 163, I hate and abhor lying. I reject lying, but I uh, accept your law. Proverbs 122, this is all poetic uh, language here, so it doesn't have that idea of personal love. It has this idea of accepting one thing and rejecting uh, something else. So in conclusion, Jacob and Esau in Malachi 1, 3, and 4 in Romans 9 
are figures of speech where the head of a family line stands for the family. This is technically called a figure of speech of metonymy where a person is placed for his descendants. We have a similar thing where a head of state can be placed for those who serve him. Trump killed Soleimani last week. Okay, Trump didn't personally do it. He ordered it, and the military that serves him did it. Trump attacked Iran. Trump didn't attack Iran, but you know what? what it's the head who is stated instead of those who, who serve him, the Iran, the country which is Soleimani served. So this is the same idea. So in Bullinger's massive figures of speech in the Bible, which every pastor should use all the time, my, I, I was telling Dan Ingram this today that that when I took exegesis of Psalms in seminary, I almost had to buy a new lexicon and a new Bullinger because I used them so much that they were just about destroyed. The spines were just about wiped out just in one semester of use. Uh, if we weren't consulting this on every figure of speech and documenting it, then it wasn't. Uh, we weren't going to make the good grades we wanted. So Bullinger says that, that in a metonymy of the person for his descendants, the name of a man for his posterity is put, and then lists a whole bunch of verses, including Malachi 1, uh, verses 2 and 3. So wrapping it up, what does the Bible teach about God's love? It teaches that this has to do with God's, um, God's acceptance and rejection in terms of his plan, his preference of Jacob over against uh, Esau. So I was going to try to get to the last part of it, but we'll wait and do that next time because I've already gone uh, pretty far. But it's, it, well, I'm going to finish it because there's not a lot to say. What happens is Joab is going to finish the job on uh, Rabbah, the capital of Ammon, and he sends a message to David and says, I fought against Rabbah, and I've taken the city of water. It's called the royal city in verse 26, but by defining it this way, what he's talking about is he's captured the source of water. Once you capture, capture the source of water for a city in the desert, you now control the city. And that's what he says. So then he calls for David to come and to bring the campaign to an end with the final charge, and this is what we read in verse 29. David gathered all the people together, went to Rabbah, fought against it, and took it. And then he takes their king's crown from his head. It is, its weight is a talent of gold, 75 pounds. So he's taking this, this crown, which was on uh, Milcom is the name of the idol. So it's probably not the king's crown, but Milcom's crown. And so this is a sign that Yahweh has defeated his enemies, the false idols and the false gods. And David, by taking that crown, is demonstrating the victory of Yahweh over his enemies. And then in verse 31, he brought out the people who were in it, put them to work with saws and iron picks and iron axes, and made them cross over to the brickworks. So he did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. So basically, he is taking control of all of the cities 
And after the siege, he's having them do all the repair work and rebuild the city. So that brings this section to an end with his victory over those in what is today called Jordan, and Rabbah is what is today called uh, Ahmad. And next time we'll get into the episode with Amnon, uh, Tamar, and Absalom. Father, thank you for the opportunity to study these things. Help us to understand as we read what it means when we read about your love, love and hate, understanding these figures of speech, that we may have a clear understanding of your plans and your purposes. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.